Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at uh, Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm coming from Oklahoma City for the first time. I'm joined today with Ken Katkin, who is a professor of law at Chase College of Law and a visiting professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Ken, how are you doing this morning? Good. How are you, Trey? I'm doing real well. I, um, As we were kind of talking about before the show, this is going to be our first here uh, being produced in Oklahoma City. So it's weird. I've, I've moved. I'm no longer in Florida. I'm here in Oklahoma in the midst of Oklahoma City, which is fascinating. So it's been a lot of fun. And obviously, you've got a big move going on at the same time as well. Yeah, I haven't started it yet, but um, within the next week or two, I'll be moving out to Boulder, Colorado to be a visiting professor at University of Colorado. So now are you going to drive or fly out there? Oh, um, <laughs> I, will, I will drive because I'll need my car out there. Oh, so you, then you very well might drive right by me because, I mean, you have to either come through here or Kansas. There's not many options. Yeah, I'll probably come through Kansas. But, oh, uh, that's yeah. a good choice. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't kind of bypass me. No. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, Ken, we've got some really fascinating things this week that have been going on. I mean, Donald Trump is president, so all you got to do is just watch Twitter and something is going to happen. So I think what we're going to start off with this week is, and we've talked a little bit about this on earlier shows, but as we've already talked about, Trump has been shifting the U.S.'s position on global trade. Once, at least rhetorically, um, the United States would have been the standard bearer for the idea that free trade is best. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, has pushed for what he calls, quote, better deals. And to achieve these better deals, he has imposed some major tariffs on countries like China and suggested that it might be time to put tariffs on all Chinese goods. And this is even extended to discussions this week with the EU, although a pen has been put in tariffs with the EU for now. This week, as Trump moved through the Midwest, he defended those trade policies and his administration has offered the first set of relief programs for those who have been impacted uh, by the tariffs. Trump has actually said this, quote, this is the time to straighten out the worst trade deals ever made by any country on earth ever in history. These deals were made by people I don't know if they didn't understand or they didn't care or if they didn't frankly love our country, but we have the worst trade deals ever made in history, but now they're becoming good again. The other side of this tour was a $12 billion aid plan to the farmers hit by tariffs after Donald Trump tweeted, quote, tariffs are the greatest. None of this requires congressional approval. So, Ken, except for the, uh, you know, him always wanting to say this is the biggest thing on Earth history ever. (laughs) What do you think about kind of the defense of these policies, which is new from we talked about? And then now the idea that we need to start subsidizing, beginning with farmers here, um, you know, kind of the negative economic impacts of these tariffs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's all been done so clumsily uh, that um, you know, it's I don't know that there's anything I could defend here. I mean, we talked last time you and I were on about um, you know, the, the in principle, I I think um, you know, some some targeted tariffs um, you know, could have a place. I'm not a hundred percent free trader like you are, although I. I lean in the free trade direction, but the thing is, here he's he's making up, you know, out of whole cloth um, these supposed problems, and uh, and so none of the none of the solutions that he's proposing are 
are really related to any uh, real world problems, and so they're just causing real world problems. I mean, it it seems ridiculous to me that we would want to um, uh, stop our own farmers from selling uh, produce to to Europe and to China, and then and then have them be uh, uh, tax subsidized. I, I see just no benefit to the United States in any of that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I'm the free trade guy. Now, I mean, the Trump position seems to be basically is is that we can put the squeeze on everybody else. And if we squeeze them hard enough, they are they're going to do something. I'm not really sure what that something is, but they're going to do something. Um, and it, I mean, I suppose that it is true that in a in a tit for tat tariff war, you know, a, a country like China can't impose as many tariffs on us as we can impose on them because of the nature of the, uh, the trade that occurs. Um, so, I mean, that seems to at least be a relatively popular position among uh, Democrats. I mean, that was one of the positions that they were in. I mean, do you think this is a, p- a place where Trump can maybe steal left voters? I'm sure that's why he thinks he's doing it. Um, and I guess time will tell whether whether that works or not. But I think there's some indications that it won't, because, um, you know, for one thing, we had that special election out in southwest Pennsylvania last year. That's an area where a lot of steel jobs were lost. And he um, specifically put on steel tariffs at that time, you know, seemingly seemingly to pander to voters in that in that district. And uh and there, it was an upset district where a Democrat won, so it, Connor Lamb. So it didn't, it didn't, you know, in a, in a in a sort of particular controlled experiment where we could see, well, are tariffs that are targeted for one segment of the electorate going to actually move that segment of the electorate in a particular geographic region? I, I don't think we saw that happening. And and I I I think the other problem here is that the he's hypothesizing that um, that there's going to be um, some kind of big opening, say, in European markets. Um, if he pressures them enough, but I think what what's what's wrong with that picture is that um, the agreements we already have, say with the EU, um, are pretty pretty free tradeish already. They have some exceptions in both directions uh, for industry to protect industries that are important here and important there. But you know, by and large, um, there's quite a lot of free trade in those in those in those agreements already. So I, I I think there's not that much to actually open up, and so. So the impact on voters, unless they're uh, attracted purely to the theater of it and not to the reality of it, um, you know, th- there shouldn't be, I think, enough, um, uh, say, uh, benefit to jobs here that it would really move votes, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I understand. I think in in Trump land, the idea is is that he can continue to capture states that have been traditionally democratic by capturing this trade issue. Uh, but, and I'm a little stronger on this one, as you've already noted than, yeah. uh, than you. I mean, I, I think these kinds of policies are generally a disaster. I mean, and you don't have to look any further than a f- just a few specific industries example. I mean, so for example, take a look at the um, shoe industry. Uh, as listeners might know, right, I'm a runner, so you know, there's shock that I might uh, point this one out. Uh, but because of lingering tariffs, shoes actually have some interestingly long-lasting lingering tariffs from the 1930s and 1920s. And as a result, tariffs actually on your shoes can be as high as about 88%. Um, 
And that's a huge, I mean, you're talking about paying nearly double for a pair of shoes. Uh, as a matter of fact, women and children's shoes are more expensive. So if you go to Walmart and you wonder why, say, children's shoes are about the same price as women's shoes, that actually has nothing to do with their manufacturing costs. And it has everything to do um, with 1930s uh, tariff policies. Uh, which is why women's shoes and, and uh, children's shoes are nearly as expensive as men's. Men's are t- uh, tariffed at a lower rate, ironically enough, and also depending on the, the material used. So canvas, ironically, is a higher tariffed. Uh, and so in these, in these kinds of ways, we end up having far worse uh, economic deals for the, for the average buyer. But now here's the thing, Ken, and we've talked about this on the show before, and I'm curious to get your perspective on it. Benefits for not having tariffs are generally diffuse, meaning that everybody gets a little bit, right? So my shoes yeah. cost a lot, a lot less, but it's just one pair of shoes. But the benefits often of tariffs are concentrated, meaning that you have an industry that gets uh, protected. And even if the long term that's bad, it seems positive to those people, maybe in a bigger way than the diffuse good. So do you think that on that front, that makes this a more difficult vote issue to kind of push? Well, uh, that's what I was trying to get at before. Maybe I didn't. I'm glad you honed the question that as specifically as you did, because I think what I was trying to say before is that. I think that could work if you had um, somebody who was um, had had a strategy, um, you know, actually trying to impose tariffs and keep them in place for the purpose of protecting a particular industry here. But I think Trump is so flighty; he keeps going back and forth between even what his end game is or what his goal is. You know, so so sometimes he'll say he's imposing the tariffs in order to to do that. I'm imposing steel tariffs so that we can get our domestic steel industry protected and get jobs back in it. And then and then other times he'll say, well, he's actually imposing the tariffs as a negotiating tool so that he can then lift the tariffs when um, when 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 Europe or China or whatever lifts some imaginary tariffs that he thinks they're imposing on us. And so so the idea is that these tariffs, he's not really committing to putting them in place and keeping them in place. And therefore, it's hard for me to see how um, industry could possibly respond. You know, the the American steel industry, for instance, would suddenly flourish because there's a tariff, even though he's um, saying that he's probably going to get rid of that tariff once he can negotiate it away. So I think I think that's the flaw here. I just think I think the theory could work, but the theory is really an anti free trade uh, theory, whereas Trump is sort of trying to say he's using um, these tariffs as a strategy for what he sees ultimately as a more more free trade end game, but then that can't accomplish what the um, what what the what the tariffs might might be accomplishing in, in in the scenario that you proposed. Yeah, as a matter of fact, well, the thing that this reminds me of is import substitution industrialization, right? The idea that you were going to use tariffs temporarily to establish industry, and then you could eventually lower the tariffs. But of course, the problem with that, as India experienced, was that as soon as the tariffs go away then the seemingly industrialized companies end up still falling uh, pressure to market forces. And so on that front, I think we have complete agreement. So if you're going to have tariffs, they're going to have to stay there or these industries like steel are not going to remain. And so he probably doesn't even have a a clue about history, despite him always chatting about being the biggest thing in history. Uh, But it it really seems like the continuation of the failed ISI policies um, that happened in the developing world. 
Yeah, that, that's how I see it too. And 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 of course, steel, you know, didn't respond. I mean, so there are some steel tariffs now, but you're not seeing like huge amounts of new domestic production of steel because people expect that this whole thing is just um, uh, temporary. And uh, and and voters didn't respond either. That's why I really specifically pointed out that southeast Pennsylvania district. Um, you know that that if any voters were going to respond to that, that's where I think you would have expected to see that. But uh, but really, people can't take it that seriously. Yeah. Well, on a, as I think we've kind of hashed that one, but I think that there's a, a related issue uh, that is kind of still foreign policy, but instead of trade, we've got the other side. We've got war. Because on Monday of this week, Donald Trump tweeted about military action against Iran. Uh, the all-cap tweet, yes, all-cap tweet, from the president read, quote, Never, ever threaten the United States again, or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. Be cautious. So again, this kind of this common theme of it's always throughout history. Um, The threat came after the Iranian president said last Sunday that war with Iran would be, quote, the mother of all wars, end quote. The Iranian foreign minister tweeted in response to Trump, unimpressed. So is this is this even a big I mean this was a big news item through the cycle. Is it really a big news item, Ken? Or do you think this is just another topic change for the president as he was facing criticism from Russia? Yeah, I mean I, I think both that it's just, you know, he thinks belligerence sells with his base, so he's always looking for ways to be belligerent. But also I actually do look at this a little bit through the lens of um as you know, I, I basically view all of Trump's foreign policy uh, uh, moves and initiatives as being dictated by Putin. And I, I think this is just another, you know, here's 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 a, a state that's a Russian client state, Iran. Um, and I think the idea that basically, um, you know, Putin would say to Trump, well, you should you should be belligerent with them. And then Putin would say to Iran, you know, you should just be extremely dismissive of, of Trump. You know, it, it sort of um, it just wreaks havoc in, in America. I think, you know, it creates domestic uh, dissension. It somewhat somewhat um, weakens America's role in the world. And I, I, I look at I look at all of these things as being dictated by Moscow. So I look at this as just another one of those. Now, it's interesting, and I, I know you kind of take that the the hardline uh, Russian involvement view. But then, you know, once you start, even, you know, whether we agree or disagree on that front, I mean, do these kinds of interactions worry you? And do you think that this is a legitimate worry for uh, for Americans? You mean that, that we're going to have a war with Iran? Well, that, that this kind of rhetoric will ramp up into something more. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to have a war with Iran. Um, I, I think the main uh, it, it it ramps up into something more, but I don't think all the way up to the level of um, th- threats of uh, armed conflict. But I think what it what it ramps up to is more um, domestic uh, um, uh, sort of um, rancor, right? That that you know, when when we've got a, a president who's being uh, belligerent, then you know, domestically, some people get behind him and some people get appalled by it. And uh, on the international scene, it causes problems, say, with our relationships with with our allies, um, our, our European and Canadian friends, as I would still call them friends. And, uh, you know, they don't like this kind of thing. And uh, so I think those are the kind of problems that it causes more than a real threat of uh, armed conflict with Iran. Well, the thing that's kind of interesting to me is, is it seems that whether it's planned or if it's just kind of the random uh, pushing out against all directions, I mean, you, we, we have not even been through uh, an entire year yet. 
and in this year, how many different countries have we been belligerent with? <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I, I guess when I work, so when I talk about that ramping up, I'm with you. I, I don't suddenly see us launching nuclear missiles at Iran or anything, which is obviously the the um, the all caps threat that I think the president is you know trying to quote unquote hint at. Uh, but what I what I do worry is is that when you continue to have these like when you continue to have this kind of level of confrontation, just kind of helter skelter at the dartboard that you could have something unfortunate happen unintentionally. And so I see this as being a, a continuation of this kind of foreign policy where we just kind of randomly punch out into the night every time there's a domestic issue as a way to hope, I think the at the White House hopes, will deflect from legitimate criticisms of the administration. And one of these times, this kind of random punch might result in something more than, you know, a foreign minister treating, tweeting back like a 13 year old girl unimpressed. Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree with that, but the only thing I sort of add to that, where I think that you, you probably aren't prepared to go as far as I am, is that I, I think that that um, part of this is that it's intentionally designed to make our own allies lose confidence in us, and that that and that that uh, design is Putin's design. You know, I, I think that's part of it. But I I also agree with all the parts of it that you just said. You just have, you have an additional addendum, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I understand. As a matter of fact, I am not opposed to the position. So I I know this is something that where uh, Jay and I, for instance, uh, have a level of separation. Um, I, I think it's clear that Russia was interested and actively involved in uh, pushing uh, a kind of a, a Trump position. And I think that there is a significant amount of evidence to suggest that that was uh, probable, not even just possible, but probable. Uh, but I, I, I'm not qu- I don't quite see the evidence yet to suggest that Russia quite has the, that level of connection uh, to the White House, that kind of uh, almost uh, almost a cabinet level position, I think is kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, well, so. Well, they, they have a lot of connections to a lot of people that are close to the president. And, and another way I would say that I think about this is let, let's just Im- imagine that we're both agnostic about that. We don't know whether there's such a connection or not, but now try to think about, if if Russia could orchestrate, um, just hypothetically, if Russia could orchestrate um, how they would like uh, the the U.S. and Iran to be um, uh, interacting with each other right now, uh, what would that look like? You know, that's actually a difficult question. I'm not yeah, sure. I think I think it would look like what we're seeing. Uh, you know, a lot of phony belligerence that has the U.S. issuing a lot of baseless threats and Iran kind of um, uh, just being very dismissive. Um, and kind of making the U.S. appear smaller, uh, smaller and more belligerent because of that. I, I think that's exactly the way um, Putin would like the the U.S. to be presenting itself in the world right now, and the way um, uh, even Russia would like uh, Iran to be presenting itself in the world right now as the more as the more uh, mature, uh, uh, unflappable uh, kind of um, uh, uh, victim who's being you know picked on by a bully. Um, I, I think the optics of this sort of play very much into Russian interests. So that's not a proof that they're, that they're behind it, but it seems like there's a lot of um, situations where uh, Trump uh, you know, says something in the international relations sphere, and it ends up looking a lot like um, what Russia would, would want. Yeah, and now I, I won't, I'm not going to try to push back on that. I, I recognize and I agree that 
the uh, deterioration of American leadership in the world is a boon from Russia. But I guess where I would, would have a little bit of a push is to say that uh, I think it, when you have a president such as Trump, who's very seemingly every international move uh, has been uh, a catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just going to go on a limb and say a catastrophe. That th- that will always be to the benefit to other countries like Russia. And so it becomes difficult then to kind of pull out what would be potentially the false positive because, you know, you could equally suggest that a, a, disaster, a continually disastrous foreign policy of the United States is, of course, always to the benefit of other countries, in this case, specifically Russia. Yeah, yeah. I'm also adding to that all the evidence of actual linkages between people in the in the Trump administration and and, and Russia and and Trump himself and his odd, um, you know, even recently and even under so much scrutiny, you know, insisting to be left alone in a room with uh, with his controller Vladimir Putin for uh, a couple of hours there. You know, it's it's odd, and and so it could just be um, that Trump's instincts. Um, correlate with Russian uh, uh, interests, even without his strings being pulled. But there, but there is a lot of circumstantial evidence of, of contacts and connections and linkages that would suggest that his strings are being pulled. Well, on that topic, because I think this is kind of a fascinating go as we kind of talk about the back room of Trump, you know, the other big issue this week, now again, obviously this isn't specifically with uh, Russia, although there is, there is some other potential ties here. The uh, Michael Cohen has seemingly kind of switched sides this week and released an audio recording of a private conversation between himself and the president. The tape made in September 2016 discusses a payout to a quote-unquote David um, for Stormy Daniels. And it means that Trump knew about this payment in advance, and it might mean more legally speaking, but I'm going to leave some of that to you, Ken. Um, although obviously alone this isn't enough to be uh, a prosecution, it does appear to be part of the drip drip of this issue for Trump. What do you think about this development with the Cohen tape? There's, it's a big question. I've been this I have been thinking about a lot, and there's there's a lot of different angles to look at this from. Um, one is um, Cohen did, didn't exactly leak the tape because he did have Trump's permission to disclose the tape. Right. So 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 that I've been just having a real difficult time figuring out why Trump thought it was in his interest to have Cohen disclose this tape. It doesn't seem to me like it's in Trump's interest. And I I don't know why why Trump would have consented to that. But 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 he did. And I I don't have a theory for that. Do you you have a theory for that? No, it is fascinating. I mean, it seems to be. I mean, if you take Giuliani at his at his word, basically, it seems to be that the, the position is, is that by Trump knew, but didn't know enough to be culpable seems to be, but that that's a bizarre position to take. As a matter of fact, um, having once upon a time worked in a prosecutor's office, I can say that there are really no circumstances when, if you're on the defense that you ever want your client to have a recording in a, in any setting whatsoever. I mean, even if, even if it's a positive thing, generally speaking, a audio recording never goes well for the defense. And so I'm with you. I don't understand. I mean, if I, if I was again, not, I mean, I'm not, I don't have my (laughs) law degree, but I've done a lot of work there. If, you know, if I was suddenly somebody's lawyer, um, I don't care what it was you were talking about on the tape. I don't want a prosecutor to have that. 
Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it was it was outrageous misconduct of Cohen to uh, record conversations with his own client without telling the client. That's outrageous misconduct. But then even Cohen didn't go uh, farther than that and um, disclose those recordings without the client's authorization. So the the, uh, the the client Trump did give the authorization, and I, I see no benefit to him in this. Maybe 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 the only thing I can think is that they just thought that um, it was inevitably going to come out anyhow and that they wanted to have some control over the um, the mode of disclosure, that they wanted to, you know, put, put out the, the tape that they thought was the least harmful in that group of tapes and, and have, a, have a ready story about it. But, but I do think it's a relatively harmful tape. I mean, it, it shows Trump, uh, you know, it, it exposes him as having lied about not uh, knowing anything about this. And, and it, there, it, it doesn't prove a campaign finance um, uh, uh, violation because it doesn't, show that any of the money came out of donated campaign funds but uh but but it um but it but it certainly opens the door for um the more investigation into that question uh so i yeah i don't know why trump wanted it released i i i think you know one thing i thought was interesting about listening to the tape itself is that um which admittedly trump, is not an easy it, it's not uh if, if listeners haven't, haven't heard it yet it's a difficult tape to decipher i mean parts of it are very difficult to hear so there's a lot of yeah. questions there, there's still questions being asked about the tapes to start but continue oh yeah about which david it was and things like that yep. yeah there's a lot of ambiguities but the one thing i would say is it showed trump uh very clearly um you know in control of the situation Right. That, that, that he's wanting to know everything that's going on and he's wanting to sign off on everything that's going to be done. And he's ultimately making the decisions. And that, um, I think, does come through on the tape, you know, even though there's some ambiguities about what those decisions were and, and what and who was being dealt with and how they're being dealt with. And, and I think that is um, it's interesting because he's wanted to portray himself as kind of, um, you know, not not really uh, part of um, a lot of the things that went on. Either you know specifically with with paying off the mistresses, or even more generally with some of the things going on in his presidential campaign and in his transition team um, that, that Mueller's been looking into. But this this paints a picture of him as a much more hands-on uh, uh, CEO type than than the picture that he's wanted to paint of himself. I think. Right, which before was basically that you know Cohen acting like the good attorney all on his own goes out and single-handedly handles the problem. And, you know, Trump is kind of blindsided, not blindsided, yeah. but he is happily surprised. <laughs> right, right. That, that was the kind of picture he's been painting of this, of these episodes, but even of generally a lot of the, the, a lot of questions that have been being asked about different kinds of things that happened during the campaign and during the transition. That's been his general narrative, you know, about these mistresses, but also about the Russia stuff, also about other stuff. And I, I just think that this paints a picture of him that makes that kind of narrative really hard to believe. Now, you know, still on this topic, and, and you had mentioned this a minute ago, but there is question about who the David is in this case. And there seems to be reason to suspect that it could be um, the head, basically, of the company that uh, owns the um, National Enquirer. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, the other thing about this that means is, you know, I mean, Moeller, for instance, now. I mean, what else does David know? <laughs> and right, that, right. that's an interesting question for a potential set of subpoenas. Yeah, well, of course, um, uh, Mueller did just finally give a subpoena to the um, Trump CFO, Trump Organization CFO, uh, Alan Wesselberg, and his name comes up on those recordings as well. So that's the most uh, direct consequence, I think, um, you know, of that conversation is that 
the, uh, Cohen mentions uh, talking to Alan Wesselberg about how to finance this payoff. And uh, Alan Wesselberg was uh, subpoenaed either the same day or the next day um, by Mueller uh, from when the recording uh, got, got publicly disclosed. Um, yeah, maybe the David, who's the CEO of, um, uh, I think it's called American Media International, the, the company that owns the National Enquirer, mm-hmm. will be subpoenaed. Um, he did, you know, he did buy a couple of these stories from the mistresses and then not publish them um, so that, you know, there could be some questions about uh, who paid for the purchase of these stories that weren't published. Um, and uh, but there's other I mean, I think David was also the pseudonym that Trump himself was using in the in the settlement agreement with Stormy Daniels and perhaps with some of the others. So so I think there I think there is some ambiguity about what David they're talking whether that was the real David or whether that was phony David, which was Trump's pseudonym. Uh, I'm I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I don't think those are things that we can answer with the evidence that we have, you know, currently. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely ambiguities, but I think the one thing I found unambiguous about it was just um, the, the amount of control that Trump had over everything going on. He, he was fully informed. He was making decisions. Um, and I think that that suggests that that's kind of the way he, 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 he runs his operation. And so a lot of his attempts to distance himself seem to me to be um, undermined by, uh, by this tape. And it will be interesting to see if more, you know, do more tapes come out? Is this the end of it? I mean, is that, I mean, was the idea that you kind of make a a tiny, you know, a moderate splash instead of a bigger splash? So this will be something that's fascinating to continue to look at, you know, as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I don't know how they would come out um, because I I think they are protected by attorney-client privilege. And if Mueller tries to subpoena them, um, I don't. I don't think he's entitled to them. You know, th- this was a weird case where. Uh, um, Trump, I mean, I guess Mueller already has them. He he, uh, he he served a search warrant and physically collected the tapes. But I, I don't know how he can bring them out in a trial or anything like that because uh, Trump would make an objection and say, you know, these were confidential conversations with my attorney uh, related to his representation of me, and that's protected by the attorney-client privilege, and it should be. And even and even this one, you know, I think is, but uh, but he apparently uh, Trump himself, I should say, just d- d- waived the privilege and allowed this this one tape to be disclosed. But now you you know, you do bring an interesting point up, and I hadn't even thought about this. I mean, he would have those tapes, and so even if you can't use them, it wouldn't mean that maybe, for example, other tapes put in perspective who David is, or you know, so it could be the case that the the wider range of tapes offers Mueller a picture that we're not able to see that, that that advances his investigation in some way that we can't even understand. Yeah. I mean, he may be listening to these tapes. They say there's more than a hundred of them and that he, he has them. That was from that warrant that was served on, on Cohen's uh, law office and, and also on the, the warehouse where one of the um, uh, uh, Trump employees voluntarily allowed FBI agents to search. So, so Mueller has a lot of these tapes, but, but um, even if the warrants were valid, uh, it would be um, difficult, if not impossible, I think, to get the tapes admitted into evidence because of the attorney client privilege. So the public may never know what's in the rest of them. Yeah. Well, on a very different note, we want to chat a little bit about something that does not involve Trump. <laughs> Uh, And that is, uh, this week we had some really big economic news, although it was easy to miss some of that because it was coming here at the end of the week, um, and uh, economics hasn't been a big deal. Although I will say, we're not going to talk about this today, but the other economic news is there appears to be some slowdowns in the housing market, and I think that that's going to be a story 
that we'll be tackling in the future if some of those indicators move that way. But this week, what we want to talk about is that Facebook, Netflix, Twitter, and Intel all had some big negative investor indicators leading to some big stock falls. And the worst of these, of course, was Facebook's 19% crash, the largest ever for a company in one day, and I'm going to sound like Trump, in history, uh, (laughs) losing uh, $119 billion in market capitalization uh, and slashing, at least on paper, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's net wealth. Um, So why the extra, extra interest in Facebook? Well, some of this is probably due to the result that there have been some signs that investor, excuse me, for investors that user growth is slowing in the wake of the security scandals, including the Cambridge Analytica. And there is also some deep investor concerns with the EU's new privacy laws. But of course, keep in mind, just a little historical data here. Facebook is still up on the year overall. It's just down to the levels last seen of May of this year, but that's still a huge drop uh, on this call. So Ken, do you think this could be some, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about privacy and some of the issues of social media and privacy, specifically what Facebook was doing with data and kind of our takeaway, uh, both between myself and Jay uh, and others has been that, well, until users change behavior, we don't expect to see major changes to Facebook. Could this be the beginning of maybe user behavior change? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to predict the future, especially with with uh, relation to the internet, where things are always changing so fast. But that's a possibility. Um, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. So I suppose the most minimal possibility is just that um, that although 19% drop in one day uh, is is a lot, um, uh, th- that really, as you said, this only puts it back to the same value that it was at in May. It's still up for the year. And it could just be a correction of um, what was a kind of a very irrational exuberance that had run up the value a lot just in the past couple months. So that's the most minimal reading. And in that case, it's more of just a speed bump. But I think you could have more maximal readings and and say, well, it does relate to um, that a lot of the ways that Facebook made money um, are are coming under um, different kinds of assault now. Um, In the EU, certainly there's going to be more regulation than in the past of how they how they monetize the data that they collect, and so that's going to um, impair some of the, some of their revenue streams. Um, maybe around the world, there will be more regulation of that as well. Maybe even eventually in the U.S. I don't think we'll see it in the next couple of years, but um, but I think you know people might Wall Street might have the idea that um, eventually there's going to be more regulation of that. Um, another thing I think is that uh, that, that users, um, because of the publicity over the the Cambridge Analytica. Users may be switching to other other platforms. I mean, some of the switch is just to Instagram, which is actually owned by Facebook anyhow. So that that wouldn't necessarily hurt Facebook's uh, bottom line if people leave Facebook and go to Instagram. Um, then the final thing I think it's which is more prosaic and and you know just a business thing is um, the 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 model they have of um, where advertisers pay for preferred placements. You know, it may be that the, the advertisers are getting diminishing returns on that and. Uh, I did see in some of the coverage of the Netflix news that you know that that part of the reason that Netflix acquisition growth was lower than they had projected was that their advertising model had had been heavily based on Facebook advertising and that it's just not returning the kind of results that it used to um, as as more and more uh, uh, advertisers are buying you know for that same uh, paid placement on Facebook that they just get less and less uh, bang for the buck out of that. 
Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you, you can talk about kind of the minimal versus the maximal. One of the interesting comparisons here is to note that Google, a company that also makes its money on advertising, did not suffer the same kind of downtick, which makes me wonder if this isn't a bit more about and in my opinion, I, I think the EU privacy laws from the point of view of investors, um, because they don't seem that they're going to hit the Googles of the world quite in the same way as the Facebook, where, you know, the entire revenue stream is coming from user data. And, I, I you know, so I agree with you, this very well could be a speed bump. But if it was just a speed bump, I would have expected to see Google on that list as well coming down. Yeah, I mean, certainly Facebook is going to have to do a lot more to comply with new regulations because their practices in the, has, have been, frankly, a lot shadier than Google's. Mm-hmm. So if, if you start regulating them more, you know, Google's going to have less work to do to comply with these new regulations than, than Facebook will. And, and, and yeah, so I think that's right. I mean, I think Facebook is, is more, has more exposure um, to a changing regulatory environment affecting its business model uh, than, than Google would. Um, but but Facebook wasn't the only internet company that that had a bad week this week. You 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 named a few others. Uh, Twitter Netflix, and Intel, for Twitter, example. And, yeah. 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 Exactly. So you know. So I think I think yeah. The evidence could point in either direction there. I think. Yeah. Now I think Intel obviously is an outlier. I mean, for those who are who are tech geeks, you know, they keep pushing back their smaller chips, and now it's pushed back into 2019. They should have come out uh, early this year, and they haven't. So, I, in many ways, I know that a lot of like the Bloomberg's of the world and the CNBCs are lumping Intel in with this. But anybody who who pays a little bit of attention recognizes that I think Intel's in a different uh, in a different realm than say the Facebook and the Twitter and the Netflix, which are clearly intertwined with one another. Uh, and the reason for the decline. Yeah. But, well, Ken, it has been wonderful chatting with you again uh, this week, because I know it's been a few weeks since we've done it. As a matter of fact, over a month, hasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's always fun, though. Yeah. Well, Ken, I hope to, again, be talking with you soon, but this time while you're out in Denver. So we'll be doing the, you know, the all central and mountain uh, politics guys episode. That's right. Uh, listeners, we will ask you though, that if this week, if you could do something phenomenal for us, there are things that you can do to help us that don't cost a penny. And that includes giving us four star reviews on iTunes, sharing the politics guys with friends and putting those and blasting that out on social media, even including the ones stealing your information like Facebook. Also support, I would like to note that supporters, if you support us, will get a bonus show, which will be uh, coming out at the end of our regular show here. And this week, Week, we're going to be taking on some questions about the Democratic Party's position in upcoming elections and Florida stand your ground laws. So if you are not already a supporter and you would like to listen to that supporters only show, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support or you can head to politicsguys.com and catch us there. If you really like uh, this show, what you can do is you can head to the politicsguys.com and if you take a look at the top, there is actually a place where you can click and support this show. It is supporters that make this show happen. The ability to have the microphones and to have the uh, the software to make this go is not free, and we do that because of you, and we are very grateful uh, for all of our supporters and our listeners, and we hope that if you're just a listener, that you'll consider supporting, and if you can't, that you will continue to give us four-star ratings on iTunes, and you'll continue to pop us up to the top of those 
tits, which helps us in a variety of other ways. This week's episode is brought to you by uh, Ken Katkin and Trey Orndorff. The Politics Guys is produced by Trey Orndorff, Michael Baranowski, and Jay Carson. This week's episode is produced by Trey Orndorff. We hope you'll join us again next week.